Let there be light. And there was light. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is precious to us. It's precious to us because it tells us of you. And it holds forth the good news, the great story of Jesus, your life, your suffering, your death, your burial, and now of the good news of the resurrection. We rejoice in it, and we thank you for this hope that we have. Lord, attune our hearts to hear it afresh today, this passage that is known so well to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started, and we were looking at the death of Christ and then the burial of Christ. And we read this, this verse, verse 44, where it said, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Not anymore. Not on this day was the darkness going to last. What a contrast of mornings that there are in these few pages. Of course, we don't know anything about Saturday morning. We don't know what that Sabbath was like between Friday morning and Sunday morning. But what we know is that Friday morning started off with Jesus being carried off to a trial, first Jewish, then Roman, and then to his own death by crucifixion. This morning, this Sunday morning, starts off just a little bit differently than that. Darkness never lasts in Scripture. It never lasts for long. It barely gets a verse in Genesis chapter 1, before God is breaking forth with light into the creation, a light at creation, a light that led Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness at night, a light that shone around the shepherds when they were at night watching over their sheep, a blazing light that was experienced by a few at the transfiguration of Jesus, a blinding light when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus and confronted him with Saul's own opposition, and then gave to Saul to become Paul this mission statement, I've sent you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That's the mission statement that is given to Paul. It was the same mission statement, if you will, that was embraced by Jesus himself. For he who, with the Father, is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, according to the Scriptures. He came to earth, and in coming to earth, he came to earth as the light, and yet he came to earth veiled, with not all of that splendor shining forth, veiled in human flesh at the transfiguration, you get a little bit of a peeking through of the true light that belongs to Jesus, the light of the world, but he comes to give light, as we read last week earlier in Luke, to those who sit in darkness. And so this day, this resurrection day, begins with these loving and faithful women seeking to honor Jesus in his death. We'll consider the passage today 
in three simple headings. No spices, no spices, idle tales, and a promise kept. They set off for the tomb before the sun had risen. One might say, if one were so inclined, that they set off for the tomb at the dawn's early light. But if you look at the various writers, each one of the gospel writers places this at slightly a slightly different time as they're looking at different parts of it. Before the sun came up, in the darkness, you, you get the sense that they were waiting. They were waiting for there to be just enough light. And you experience that these days. You get up in the morning, just enough light to be able to see, to head out to where they were going. Now, these ladies knew where they were going. They knew where they were going because they had watched carefully what had taken place at the death and then the burial of Jesus. They had seen how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had taken care of the body of Jesus. They had taken the body of Jesus down. They had, that is Joseph and Nicodemus, used an extraordinary amount of spices already in caring for the body of Jesus, in preparing him for this burial. And when we read uh, in verse uh, 55 of chapter 23, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. We don't know the proximity that they had at that point. Were they walking along with them or were they a little bit behind them and just watching? But what we do know and what Luke is trying to make perfectly clear to us is they didn't get mixed up. They didn't get lost along the way. They knew exactly which tomb it was. They knew where the body was. They had seen who put it there so that they could go exactly back to that spot as early and as soon as they possibly could. Reading this passage we read uh, last week, we get the sense that the women prepared their spices, their ointments, so that they could anoint the body of Jesus as soon as possible. They did that on Friday. It grew dark, the Sabbath came, and so they couldn't take action at that point. They rested according to the Sabbath, and when the Sabbath ended Sunday morning, they take off and head out towards the tomb as quickly as they possibly can. And as they go, as they prepare for this trip, let us understand this clearly, they are prepared to find a dead Jesus. That's what they're expecting as they head towards the tomb. They're looking for a dead body. And more than that, the, the spices, the ointments that they have prepared for Jesus, while they are for honor, a way to honor a person in their death, they are not merely for honor. They have a very practical function in a day when they didn't have all of the practices that we have that make death as cleanly as it can possibly be, at least for our generation. The things that were going to accompany death are decomposition, decay, and corruption. Now, we've all seen this. Perhaps because of the culture in which we live, we've not all seen this as it relates to a dead person. Well, we've all experienced it, right? We've all come across a dead animal or a, a dead bird somewhere along the way, a dead fish in the water, and we understand the process of decomposition. 
We understand that along with the ugliness of it, the awfulness of it, comes a stench, the stench of death, the smell of death and decay, and it is unpleasant. And thus, these spices and ointments for anointing are designed very specifically to cover up that smell. We don't want Jesus, whom we loved, to stink in his decay. They expect to find not only a dead Jesus, but a decomposing or a soon-to-be decomposing Jesus. But wonder of wonders, they get there, and you know, different things stand out to you as you read passages that are familiar, and I'm sure the same thing is true for you. And what struck me this week so much as I looked at this is wonder of wonders, they get there, and these spices are not needed. You are not going to need these spices. I don't care what you do with them. I don't care if you sell them to somebody else, give them to somebody else, throw these spices away, and I, I don't know all of the composition or how all of the spices were done and the ointments were done, or if you just take them and throw them up in the air, let the wind blow them away, because ladies, those spices are not needed. Why? Because of Psalm 16. Because of what we read earlier, because God is fulfilling Psalm 16 in the person of his son. Because it is written, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's why they don't need those spices. I don't often do this. I try to stay pretty close to one particular text when I'm preaching. Turn with me, though, if you've got your Bibles, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, of course, Acts being written by Luke as well. So this is very close, um, and we're going to allow Peter to do the commentary. Now, we'll get to Peter later in our passage here, but let's allow Peter to comment on this whole idea of the decay or the possible decay of Jesus or the fact that he didn't decay. So look with me at this, at, at this great passage. So Peter is preaching. It's the sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to begin uh, with verse 24. Verse 32, 22 basically sets this up. He says, this is Jesus. This is the one whom God has made, the Lord in Christ. He's the one that you crucified by the hands of sinful men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great phrase, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus couldn't be held by death because he didn't deserve death. He who had committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he could not be held by the cords of death. For David says concerning him, and here Peter then quotes for us Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I sh may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I 
may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he has both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, if you want to go dig up David, you can go dig up David. Being therefore a prophet, that is to say David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his thrones, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter lays hold of this, lays hold of all that he knows about the resurrection. You don't need the spices because God has promised that he will not let his holy one see decay. He won't abandon his soul. He won't abandon his body or his flesh either. That's why Peter can say, in, I'm saying, Peter, this is why David can say in this psalm, my flesh also rejoices. Why does my flesh rejoice? Because God has promised that one who's sitting on my throne at some point is going to be raised up without having seen any decay. And in that is my own hope of resurrection, even though my own body will experience that decay. That changed things for Peter. No corruption, and therefore no spices are needed. Let's move on to the idle tales. We'll return in a moment to the message of the angels, and we'll look at that. But you know what the angels said to the women. Obviously, when these women hear this, when they experience what is taking place, they are surprised by it, right? We know that they didn't expect to hear these things. They didn't expect to find the situation that confronted them here. But they hear the testimony of these two witnessing angels. There are two witnesses. They're established right there at the tomb to tell them what has taken place. They not only hear the testimony of the angels, but they see these things. They see the fact that the stone has been rolled away, and they see that there is no body in this tomb anymore. And having heard the testimony of the witnesses, having been and become witnesses themselves of the empty tomb, these women then become the first human witnesses to the resurrection, the first heralds of this resurrection news. We get their names a little bit later in the passage. So they go. And they tell the 11 at this point, 11 now without Judas, of course, and we hear the reaction that they get in verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It seemed like a fairy tale. It seemed like a fantasy. The, uh, the, the, the idea specifically behind this word is it seemed to them to be the kind of words that you might say when you're in the midst of a really high fever and you're just babbling you're just saying words that don't mean anything that's the idea here this is nonsense these are words that are coming out of delirium 
And here, again, I think, and it confronts us, of course, periodically as we look through the pages of Scripture, here, I think, for me at least, and I hope for all of us as well, is one of the things that we appreciate most about Scripture, namely the honesty that is here, the integrity of the people who were closest and involved in these particular events. They didn't expect it. They didn't believe it when they heard it. In a word, what were they? They, they were skeptics. Right? They, they were resurrection skeptics. And I think that in that is incredible comfort for us. Clearly, neither the women, nor the disciples, nor the others who were with the disciples, clearly they were not in on some secret plot to steal the body of Jesus and to concoct this story. Had they been, the testimony would have been, he was raised. There's no secret plot. There's just confusion. There's marvel. There's wonder at how these things are taking place. And clearly, none of them understood it. None of them got it. None of the disciples got together and said, you know, this whole crucifixion thing is not good. But the crucifixion, it's okay because he'll be back in three days. Remember what he said? Remember how he said this? None of them got it. They heard it, but none of them get together and say, don't worry about this, it's not so bad. He will be raised. They doubted. They doubted in the same way that you and I have doubts. Did this really happen? All seemed to them as darkness. There didn't seem to be any light around this. It was just dark. The hope had been sucked out of them. We know this in our own day and age in particular. Easter and Christmas have been subjected to endless fairy tales and myths associated with them. Whether it's the Easter Bunny or Frosty the Snowman, but I think that perhaps one of the reasons for that is because the whole thing seems like an idle tale. Both of the events seem like an idle tale. What's one more idle tale? Connected to these other idle tales that God would come in the flesh, that a dead man would rise from the grave. What's Frosty the Snowman to that? Same thing. Snowman comes to life. Dead men rise. And so here's the question. Luke invites his readers into the skepticism of the inner circle. You're allowed to come in. You're allowed to, to, to enter in to the discussion, to the room, with your own skeptical attitudes, with your own doubts about the resurrection, and you're allowed to take them in. Everybody else had them. You don't have to be afraid because you had them. Everybody had them. There wasn't anybody who understood these things or believed them perfectly in that day. Now, we're invited into that here. This is stage one. We've got a couple of, we've got a morning here, we've got the afternoon in Luke 24, and then we've got the evening. So we'll look at each one of these panels in the two weeks that follow. We'll look at the afternoon, then we'll look at the evening of this. But Luke 
invites, or better yet, he demands that his hearer, the hearer of his gospel, the reader of his gospel, you've got to deal with this question. Is this one more idle tale or not? Is it an idle tale or a promise kept? Because one or the other. And if it's not an idle tale, oh boy, it changes everything. A promise kept. The two angels here at the tomb are dazzlingly bright. They are clothed in heavenly apparel. It's a different realm. The words and the descriptions that are used here parallel the description of Jesus at the transfiguration. And the women, as they experience this, quite understandably, are afraid. They are startled. It's how everybody reacts when they're in the presence of these things in Scripture. And they bow down. And Luke records for us the words coming from the angels. And, and those words that are coming from the angels, they're, they're gentle, and yet they're firm as well. As, he speak, as they speak to the women. But in essence, here's the question. What are you doing here with those spices? Why, why are you at this place? Now, they don't say this in, in so many words, but are you like the Sadducees? Remember just a few chapters ago when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, the Sadducees were trying to pin him down. They, they were trying to say, this whole resurrection thing, we don't believe this whole resurrection of the body thing. And Jesus says, listen, listen even, even the Exodus testifies to these things when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he's God of the living. You hear the echo of that right here? Why are you here? Why are you searching for the living? amongst the dead. This is where dead people are, and you won't find him. Why would you think that he is in this place? And of course, in the great words that ring throughout eternity, he's not here. He's risen. This is a passive voice here. He's been raised. His father raised him up. The definitive declaration of the resurrection by these witnesses. Where was Jesus? At his death, his soul went immediately into the presence of his Father. He experienced hell on the cross, and at his death, together with the thief who confessed his name, their souls went immediately to paradise, to being in the very presence of God while the body of Jesus rested in the grave until sometime early this Sunday morning. The angels confirm their point by reminding the women of the words of the promises of Jesus, promises that are now kept. Now, when they say this, it doesn't have the smugness or the the condescending tone of an I told you so, but it has the solidity 
and the confirmation of a he told you so. This is exactly what he said to you while he was with you in Galilee. Aren't these the things that he said to you? And of course, if you look back on Luke, we've been looking at it now for years. Yes, these are exactly the things that Jesus said. He must be three things. Verse 7, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and on the third day rise. I've tried to point out as we've gone along in the Gospel of Luke the important place of this little word must at various critical times throughout the Gospel of Luke. So very early on in the Gospel when Jesus is in the temple, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? I must go and preach the Gospel to other towns as well. I must go to Jerusalem. Jesus has said all of these things along the way. I must suffer. And in this chapter, we bring this to the conclusion now. With the word must used multiple times to explain why these things had to take place in exactly this way. There wasn't another way for them to take place. The first time is here on the lips of the angels as they are quoting the words of Jesus. And then Jesus himself will say it again three more times in this chapter. These things must take place. This is what the scriptures said had to be. It is an imperative. It is a promise kept. It is a word fulfilled. It is no idle tale. That is what they are trying to say to them. These things had to be. Believe it. Believe the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple of quick ways to, to walk away and I think lay hold of this for you. I'll give it to you in four R's. One, remember. Remember. That was the call of the angels. Remember. Remember what he told you. And they remembered. That was a powerful tool in the overcoming of their own skeptical and dark hearts and thoughts. One writer puts it this way, the antidote for this miscalculation is remembrance. Remember. Remember the promises of God. Recap. So these ladies have heard the best news ever. And they go back to the 11 and recap it. They retell it. They give them the story of the resurrection. You want to know the joy of the resurrection this week? Recap it for someone. How do you think they'll react? You get an opportunity this week to tell someone the story of the resurrection. They might just think that's an idle tale and they might not believe you. Happened to the women as well. And then people who once thought things were idle tales turn around sometimes and preach sermons like we saw in Acts chapter 2 with a little different take on it being an idle tale or not so. Run 
join with Brother Peter and run to find out if these things are so. Run to Jesus. Run to him. Take your doubts. Take your skepticism and go. Run to the word and see if these things are so. And the last are rejoice. Rejoice. Psalm 16 concludes this way. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You hear it? It's, it's a body and soul resurrection. That's why the heart is glad. Why? My heart's glad. My soul is being restored. My flesh dwells secure. No corruption. No corruption for the body of Jesus. The resurrection is real. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And it comes especially with this morning of the resurrection. The light came into the world, and the darkness will not overcome it. It looks like it. It feels like it. It felt like it to them, and it feels like it to you. You look out at your world, and you say, man, it seems like the darkness is winning. Seems like it's winning in the nation. It seems like it's winning in the nations. Seems like it's winning in my heart. The darkness will not overcome the light. It will not happen. Jesus keeps his word. He keeps his word. He said it would be like this. He said in this world you'll have tribulations. Take courage. I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. So, I want to turn us to the end of the story. The resurrection, of course, isn't the end of the story. I'm turning to Revelation. The end of the story for those who believe in the resurrected Savior and the one who is the light of the world, they're inhabitants of a city, a city that is described like this. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Night goes away. Darkness started the Bible, and it goes away forever. Pushed aside by the one who is the light of the world, who keeps his word. Remember it. Remember it when all seems darkness to you. Let's pray.